trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder, some of the most common topics in the world of addiction treatment today. On this episode of Through the Trees, we sit down with Dr. Robin Hacker, psychologist at Cedar, who specializes in trauma assessment and treatment. We review some of the more sophisticated research on the topic, including the Adverse Childhood Experiences, or ACEs, study. Having a basic understanding of the impact of trauma on addiction is part of our CEDAR curriculum as a trauma-informed healthcare facility. This episode deepens this discussion. Addiction treatment healthcare is vast territory, much of it having yet to be fully charted. It also is a field with some of the most passionate and interesting of clinicians. Each week, we walk the addiction treatment trails, learning from experts of all backgrounds and specialties. My name is Pat Failing, and I'm an addiction psychiatrist for Cedar in the University of Colorado. You're listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. So this is Dr. Pat Failing. We are here at Cedar, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation, and this is part of our Through the Trees podcast. I'm very happy today to sit down with Dr. Robin Hacker, psychologist here at Cedar. Uh, Dr. Hacker, thank you for sitting down with me. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell our listeners a little bit of uh, what are some of your roles here at the hospital? Sure. So I do a lot of different things here at Cedar. Um, One of the things I do every week is I um, run a couple of our therapeutic process groups. I supervise our psychology interns who come in. Um, I also facilitate our group supervision for all the master's level clinicians who also work with our clients. Um, And one of the most unique things as a psychologist I offer here is psychological testing. And so through psychological testing, we help answer a variety of different questions, including clarification on diagnoses, getting a better understanding of cognitive functioning for our clients who come through, and a variety of other questions that come up that we can help with. Very good. So you're doing a lot of different things. Yes. You wear a few different hats. I do. Now, uh, you have a a special interest in the impact of trauma. Yeah. So I initially got interested in this field through the field of addiction. Um, And I During my undergraduate, I was working alongside guardian ad litem. So these are attorneys who are um, working on the behalf of abused and neglected kids. And I got really um, curious about these kids and their development moving forward. During the process of debating whether to go to law school, I wanted to get more experience with the psychology, the mental health side of things and these kids and how psychology could help them and their families. So I started working at the juvenile court in Chicago and working alongside psychologists. And it was there that I got to be more involved with assessment and seeing how assessment played into helping connect these kids and these families with services that could change their trajectory moving forward. I took a few years off and continued to work with kids. So up to this point, I was really curious about working with kids and helping them overcome these traumatic experiences that I was hearing about from them. And ultimately, when I went to grad school, I tended to completely stay in the world of trauma. Um, And it was during my first practicum where I started working with not only kids, but also adults. And throughout all of this training all these years of schooling, I was starting to hear a lot more about addiction and how addiction was playing out with um, in the lives of these kids, in particular their parents and their um, their struggles with addiction. So my first year of practicum, I opted to participate in an intensive outpatient program specifically for parents whose kids had been 
removed as a result of addiction. So these kids were um, no longer in the custody of their parents because of addiction disorders that they were um, struggling with. And I just fell in love with that work. Um, and so from that point forward, I became that intersect of addiction and trauma and how they interplay and how do we treat them concurrently um, became really interesting. So fully working with adults now in addiction as a result of all of that. Well, that, So very fascinating. So we know how uh, families are affected by the disease of addiction. And I guess this would kind of expand on that and how families are affected by severely traumatic issues mm-hmm. and traumatic experiences. And then also how people who have been affected by trauma might struggle with substances and people who struggle with substances are probably at higher rates for experiencing trauma. I don't. Yeah, it's interesting. So in the literature, there's actually kind of two different theories about how PTSD and addiction are related. So one of the theories is kind of what we'd call the self-medication theory. So this is the idea that people who experience trauma and who may qualify for a diagnosis of PTSD first receive that diagnosis or first um, have that experience. And then in response to the symptoms they're experiencing, start self-medicating with substances. Okay. So now now PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes, correct. Yeah. Um, would you like me to explain what I mean by that? Sure. The, uh, yeah, tell our listeners, uh, that. so that's a clinical diagnosis. Uh, what are some of the components of that? Sure, yeah. So, so to receive a diagnosis of PTSD, the first criteria that must be there um, is um, that a person, I mean, I'm going to kind of verbatim explain this from what we see in the DSM. So to explain the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, is what we use as mental health providers to make these diagnoses. So they're agreed upon definitions of, um, for in this case, trauma and what we would consider um, common responses to that and what we'd expect to see some of in, in somebody who has this diagnosis. So the first criterion to be eligible for PTSD is that a person was exposed to death threatened death, actual or threatened serious injury, or actual or threatened sexual violence. And this can happen in a couple different ways. So one is that the person is directly exposed themselves, so they themselves are involved. Um, Another is that they've witnessed the trauma. Um, It's also possible that somebody could qualify for a diagnosis of PTSD if they learn of a relative or a close friend who was exposed to one of these traumas. So not they themselves weren't exposed, but learning of a family member, um, a really close friend, a loved one. Um, And then the kind of the fourth way that somebody could qualify for this initial criterion is through indirect exposure to um, the aversive details of trauma. And so this this potential um, type of exposure is kind of reserved for law enforcement, um, firefighters, physicians, people who throughout their day to day work are exposed to those details. Oh, interesting. So first responders and healthcare providers. Yeah. Yep. Um, But in addition to that first criterion, there's a whole bunch of other um, symptoms that have to be present. And I won't go into all the details of these, but just to give kind of a broad overview, there's five different categories of symptoms we look at. And to meet this um, criteria, to meet the diagnostic criteria for PTSD, you have to have a certain number of these in different categories. So one of those categories is intrusive symptoms. So um, it's not uncommon for people to, when they have PTSD, describe experiencing what we call flashbacks or distressing memories of the event or dreams. 
about it. Um, another category of symptoms is avoidance. And so this is actively avoiding that traumatic memory. So this could be a lot of times people will describe um, kind of just pushing back the memory, ignoring the memory, or even pretending it didn't happen, um, but also completely ignoring external reminders. So people, places, or things that remind them of the traumatic event. Also, another category is what we call alterations in cognitions or mood, so the way we think or the way we experience emotion. Um, so this, for some people, might be the inability to even remember the event or details of the event, um, to exaggerate their beliefs about themselves in a negative way, so it's not uncommon for people to feel as though they're a bad person um, or the world is unsafe. People blame themselves under this category is another example. Um, the other, another category is arousal and reactivity. Um, so people who experience PTSD often um, are quite irritable or have anger outbursts with very little provocation. Um, they tend to be hypervigilant, so that sense of kind of always being on guard or start, being easily startled. And the last category of symptoms is what we call dissociative symptoms. And these are experiences in which um, like the person doesn't feel as though they're even present in their body, or sometimes people will describe it as if they're observing things happening as if they're watching a movie, even though it's their own life. So I've heard of uh, PTSD as being kind of described as a fight or flight condition. Sure. So yeah, so um, you're right. So a lot of people after we experience traumatic events it, it can change the biology of our, the brain and how our brain functions in oh, some ways. Okay. Um, and so the pl ways, the place in which our brain stores, um, or one part of the brain that's actively involved in um, the fight or flight is the amygdala. And this is the part of our brain that tells us whether we're safe. And so somebody who's experienced one of these um, really traumatic events, that part of the brain can be overactive. And so even though, you know, we're sitting in this room and I don't, I'm actually not threatened at all, somebody who's experienced PTSD may be in this exact same situation and their body's responding in a way in which they are on guard, feeling as though they are completely unsafe and maybe like need to leave the room or, or even just not comfortable ha sitting with the door to their back. Um, sure, and like so very cautious around their sense of safety. Exactly. And so you mentioned that fight or flight response. So yeah, this is the body's natural reaction to wanting to stay alive. So somebody who's experienced that PT a traumatic event that is consistent with that definition of trauma within PTSD, our body wants to save us. And so in those moments, we often go into, we go into that fight or flight response. And um, it's common for people after those experiences to continue that response because of the way the brain has changed. Can you uh, talk a little bit about how this interplays with addiction. Sure. Yeah, so, um, and this is kind of where my interest in this intersection really came from. I was starting to see this huge overlap between people who were reporting these diagnoses of PTSD or were seeing this diagnosis and their, the prevalence of them using substances to cope. So I mentioned that self-medication hypothesis. I was seeing that play out a lot. Um, and so when we think about research and data on this, what we see is that um, of people coming into treatment for addiction, about a third of them also meet diagnostic criteria for PTSD. Um, and so in comparison to the general population, in general, um, about 8%. So if we were to, um, across the whole population of the United States, we would expect about 8% of people to meet criteria for PTSD. But within the population of people who are struggling with substance use disorders, it's almost it's a third of that. Okay, so very high. Or I mean, one third of all people, yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, and so and thinking about cedar here specifically, our numbers are very consistent with that. So when we have clients coming in, we do assess for PTSD amongst other mental health um, disorders at intake, and we see those numbers being very comparable. And that's in general, but if we look break it down by gender, we typically see um, women are two times more likely as men to have a diagnosis of PTSD. I find that quite interesting. Yeah. What do, do you have any theories why? Why that is? Um, yes, and I, and the research backs some of this up. And so one of the biggest things is that women are more likely to experience sexual assault, um, and sexual assault is more likely to result in PTSD. Um, so that's one of, I think, the big reasons. Also, um, women in general are more likely to experience traumatic experiences in their childhood. And so it's not uncommon for people who've been um, repeatedly exposed to trauma to develop PTSD when additional stressors or additional traumatic events happen. The research shows that men are more likely to experience trauma, but women are more likely to experience the more severe, if you're going to consider the sexual assaults as one of the most severe and most likely to result in PTSD. Okay, interesting. The strength of the traumatic event itself. Yeah. It would be very, very strong. Yeah, especially that makes sense when we're talking about things like sexual violence or childhood sexual abuse. Yeah. At the university hospital, we have uh, a close ties with the the VA system, so the veteran system. And I know we oftentimes think of that with combat trauma and PTSD with military people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um, that is kind of where the di- um, the diagnosis of PTSD actually came about. The diagnosis of PTSD wasn't even official or it wasn't a thing until I believe 1980, and it grew out of um, veterans and what they were had been experiencing post combat. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And to link the veteran population with um, addiction as well, um, one study that I was reading about 75% of the people who had been in the military who were had diagnoses of PTSD actually also had a diagnosis of substance use disorder. So that that comorbidity was even higher in that population. Oh, okay. So very high rates. Yeah. Interesting. So they and and also very clearly interwoven. Mm-hmm. Can you comment a little bit on some of the research or the the different studies that have looked at trauma and PTSD? Yeah, so when I think one of um, the most interesting studies, I believe, is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, and this is known as short as the ACEs. Um, and so this original study was conducted by Kaiser Permanente, one of the largest healthcare plans in the United States, um, specifically in California. And the data was collected, I believe, between 1995 and 1997. So this study alone collected data from seven, over 17,000 people about their experiences with um adverse childhood events that happened before a person was 18. Um, And so this research has allowed us, it's all correlational research, allows us to compare these people's experiences in childhood to what they're experiencing as adult in regards to mental health, um, addiction, but also all kinds of physical health um, issues that arise. And so what we're finding is that, um, or what they found is that the more of these ACEs that a person has, the higher likelihood they have a whole host of things. So from heart disease to increased use of addiction to increased number of sexual partners and risk of STDs um, and mental health diagnoses as well. So what is an example of uh, an adverse childhood event or experience? 
Sure. Yeah. So um, the study there, it was a pretty brief survey. So there was actually, I believe, only 17 questions. And these questions got at things like um, physical abuse, sexual abuse or psychological abuse, um, but also things about like if a family member was using substances in the home, if a family member member had a mental illness, violence towards their parents, um, if somebody had been incarcerated. So it's not just those big T or the that diagnosis or that definition of trauma I gave earlier. These were broader than that. Okay. And uh, was that each... So for instance, if, if a parent was incarcerated, that was one adverse event? Correct. Like even if, so if the... If the if both parents were incarcerated, would it be two events? Nope, that would still just count as one adverse childhood experience. Oh, that's just one event. Okay. Yep. All right. Yeah, okay. so um, the original survey, there were seven categories. So a person could get from zero to seven. So like what you described, that would be one. But if in addition to that, they also witnessed their father like violently aggress towards their mother, that would be a second category. Or if either of their parents were using substances, that would be a third. Okay. Okay. And then so... As each additional uh, ACE was added to anybody's experience as a child, it it just put them into a higher ratcheted group for problems as they got older. Exactly. So, yeah, we described that as like a graded dose response. So the more the more of those ACEs a person has, the higher risk they are at for this whole all of those potential um, problems in the future. Okay. do you have any any specific numbers? percent risks and things like that? Sure, yeah. Um, One of the, I think, interesting things in looking back at this research that I um, discovered, which given our topic and what we do here at CEDAR, is the most common adverse experience um, that was found was substance use in the home. And over over a quarter of the people who responded to this survey reported having that one. Um, So I thought that was quite interesting. Um, But beyond that, what we saw is... um, People who, and so I'm going to kind of break it down with people who had just even one versus people who have had four or more. Um, So people who've experienced even one ACE are more likely to begin using substances at an earlier age. They're um, two times more likely to eventually consider themselves an alcoholic. They're also almost two times as likely to have ever attempted suicide in their life. And thinking about when we raise that threshold of number of ACEs to four or more, um, we see that people are actually over 12 times as likely to have attempted suicide at some point in their life. They're over seven, almost seven and a half times more likely to consider themselves an alcoholic at some point, and almost five times as likely to ever try drugs. It seems like that's the critical mass. So once you, uh, the four adverse childhood experiences leads to some sort of a, a breaking point for more severe things as people got older. Yeah, we definitely see that increase with four or more. Very fascinating. Do, do we talk about some of the the ACEs and some of this with our curriculum here at Cedar with the patients? Yeah. So you, I think you mentioned that I do a lecture on um, trauma and addiction in this intersect. And so I definitely pull this into that lecture when I'm speaking with our clients. Um, and I actually have our clients complete a version of the ACEs survey to get a sense of where our clients are at in this as well. To I find it interesting, and also I think it makes the information I'm sharing with the clients much more meaningful when they can put what I'm sharing in the context of their own experiences and have a better understanding of what we mean when we're talking about ACEs. I wonder what that does with the patients. Does it like almost 
help validate that some of their childhood past really impacted their adulthood, like the reason that they're here. There are some some roots, I guess, of where that came from. Yeah, that's definitely definitely my hope when I do this lecture is to help um, them understand how they potentially got to this point a little bit more, and that you know some of this was this foundation was a little laid there before they were even consciously making the decision to use substances the first time. Um, what I often see as I begin this, as I go into this information is the faces of the clients kind of get kind of sad because they're not liking all the information I'm sharing with them. Um, and however, I then talk about despite this, what, you know, what they can do and how they can, um, be resilient through this and to better understand this. I was actually, I was thinking of that just right now. Like, what if you have somebody who says, all right, well, fine, that's in the past. Like, I'm not going to dwell on the past. I move forward. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. What you going to do? What, what would you say to somebody like that? So I actually anticipate that question every time I give this lecture and any time I'm working with a client who um, has this constellation of symptoms. Um, and one of the ways in my lecture that I address this before they even have the opportunity to ask that question is, so I have them fill out the ACEs survey, and then I ask them on the back to write down their first memory, just a couple sentences of, of what that memory was, and also how old they were at that time, and give them a moment to reflect on that. Um, and then we talk, I get an assessment of kind of the age range of how old they were, um, when their first memory and every single time there's somebody who has a memory from even when they were like two or younger. And so I use that as an opportunity to talk about how, you know, this, whether it's a positive memory or it's a, a difficult memory, that that memory still has some lasting impact on them because that's the memory that they remember being there first. And so I use that as a way to kind of start that conversation with them before um, that opportunity arises for them to be so defensive about this not affecting them. And and that seems to be useful so far. In addition to that, too, I I do a lot of validating how challenging it can be to acknowledge these symptoms. And then we also talk a little bit about treatment and how important it is to not to continue to avoid the trauma, which is one of those huge symptoms we see with PTSD, but to actually like lean into it and allow yourself to process in a way that can make it so it's less distressing moving forward. So the, uh, say more about that. What would what would leaning into trauma look like? Um, so one, um, kind of like one of the ma most basic ways we can do that is to even just acknowledging that it happened. So for a lot of people, like you mentioned, um, we don't want to even admit that it happened or it, it doesn't affect us anymore. So even starting to explore that sense of like, how might this still affect me? Or even here at Cedar, helping them explore if and how um, these events may be related to their continued substance use or the relapses they've had or why they initially started using substances. And so starting to tie those links together and then thinking more specifically about um, how we treat trauma, there's things like imagined exposure and there's different types of exposure that we can do where the person in a sense is I don't like using the word reliving, but that's kind of what we're doing. We're revisiting that traumatic event, but in a different way. So you're in a very safe place when we do this. So you're not actually reliving the event, but the person's going to physically feel like they are. Um, and so a lot of the that kind of work is us helping them recognize that that's no longer happening and new skills to better manage those symptoms that come up and the physical and emotional reactions to it. Okay, so kind of uh, you're trying to deepen your treatment a little bit to look at some of these things, be unafraid of them, validate them, 
as meaningful and and then also probably like insight building like try to watch how things play out today that have some ties to the past that seems very therapy for so for, especially for clients who experience nightmares or flashbacks typically very often the content of those um, experiences are directly related to their traumatic experience so it's um, particularly um, interesting when clients who experience that say that they no longer, the trauma doesn't affect them and it's no longer a problem, but being able to help them recognize, like, if you're continuing to have dreams about this, if there's flashbacks specifically related to it, to help them connect and gain that insight that this is probably still affecting you in some way. Is it possible for people to have severe traumatic events, if you will, but not kind of circling around, not diagnose the full diagnosis of PTSD. Absolutely. Yeah. So because you've experienced one of um, those traumatic experiences that we defined earlier does not mean you will have PTSD. Um, like I think I said that there's a, there's a certain number of other symptoms that have to be there and there has to be a certain period of time that has passed to actually qualify for that diagnosis. Um, I often in the lectures I give um, use the, the example of like 9-11. Everybody's familiar typically with what happened on 9-11, but everybody who was there and experienced that did not develop PTSD. Um, and so there's lots of different factors beyond just that traumatic event that go into um, whether a person's going to develop PTSD or not. So it sounds like based on this research, there are a very large number of people that we see in treatment here at Cedar who have experienced adverse childhood experiences, significant mm -hmm. traumatic events in their past. Um, I mentioned earlier that about a third of the people who come into addiction treatment and consistent with our numbers here at CEDAR um, meet um, criteria for a diagnosis of PTSD. However, when we look at the number of people who ha report having some kind of, whether it's an ch adverse childhood experience or even um, trauma as we defined it, 98% of people who come into addiction treatment report that. Okay, so that's good to know. So 98% have something traumatic in their past, but only 33% have the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes, roughly, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so um, people might be interested about what makes somebody more likely to develop PTSD then. Um, and what we know is that people who have a past mental health problem and then experience a traumatic event are more likely to develop PTSD. People who don't have social support, so I know in addiction treatment we talk a lot about the importance of social support, but lacking that as well can lead to a um, greater likelihood of developing PTSD in response to this traumatic event. I mentioned earlier people who experience sexual assault are more likely to develop PTSD. Um, if somebody's injured in the context of that traumatic event, more likely to develop that diagnosis. Um, or if during the traumatic event, they, at that time, they have a really severe reaction to it, that also increases the odds of um, developing PTSD. In addition, another piece of that is after you've experienced the traumatic event, if you tend to, or if you experience other stressful events afterwards, you're also more likely to develop it, develop PTSD too. So very fascinating. It sounds like there could be a little bit of a vicious cycle here. You, if people have traumatic pasts, their uh, market risk for kind of, as you used, like self-medicating, eventually the development of, let's say, alcoholism or a, or a drug addiction. But people who are in the midst of drug addiction and alcoholism who experience trauma during that period are at magnified risks for that really impacting them to 
PTSD. So the, it's almost like the, the traumatized person can develop alcoholism, the alcoholic could develop PTSD. Yes, and actually that's the other theory about this, is that in response to kind of what goes into seeking substances and people, it's not uncommon for people who are um, struggling with a substance use disorder to put themselves in really risky situations. So it's sure. we, we hear a lot about people who, in the context of their addiction, they've been involved in multiple, multiple sexual assaults, or they've been involved in car accidents as a result of driving under the influence. And those events can all be that big definition of trauma that we talked about earlier, but that can also lead to PTSD. So yeah, that's the other hypothesis. Experience the compassionate care of CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Located at the University of Colorado Hospital, we manage complex health needs in addition to addiction. To learn more, visit cedarcolorado.org. Okay, so it sounds like we need to we need to work with patients to learn about their past and learn and then start to what disentangle some of this stuff or what do we what do we do? Great question. So yeah, so this is one of the things I'm really, really interested in is so in my mind, especially when we think about that literature um, related to the ACEs research, is we see that these experiences put people at risk for a whole host of later life complications, including addiction, which is what we focus on here at Cedar. And it is, in my mind, something we cannot ignore. Those numbers are staggeringly high, in my opinion, about um, how many people are dealing with trauma and PTSD who come through our doors. And so it is completely inappropriate for us to dive into in the sense of like facing that trauma of doing the reprocessing work or the um, what people typically think about when we think about trauma work. Um, but what a lot of times we um, people don't recognize is before you even start that kind of trauma work, there's a lot of other stuff that goes into trauma treatment. And what we do at Cedar and in any good addiction treatment is we help people build new skills and new coping strategies. And that is one of the most important pieces of trauma treatment. And so um, when I give my lectures here to our clients, that's one of the things I really, really um, try to make sure they take away from the lecture is that every single day that you're here working on learning new coping strategies specific to your addiction, you're also learning new skills that can help you better manage the symptoms of trauma. And as that first, one of the first two things you have to do before you can ever consider reprocessing work. And I do know in behavioral health care, so therapy, our clinical work at Cedar, a lot of times a common word that's used is resiliency. People, this seems to be interwoven in the idea of trauma and treatment, stuff like this. So is resiliency some sort of a, I want to say a negative proof idea? So um, X number of people experience traumatic events in their life growing up. A good percentage of those don't develop PTSD. Hence, the people who don't develop PTSD must have some factor X that helps them. We, we call that factor X resiliency. Sure. What do you? What are your thoughts about this? Yeah. So um, definitely, P, not every. Like we said, not everybody's going to develop PTSD, and there are definitely um, uh, personal qualities people have that make them more resilient to that. Um, one of those is, I think, one of the most important is that um, that support network is a huge piece that goes into resiliency, but also um, that internal ability to cope with stress. And so everybody kind of has a different level of their ability to do this. And so. Um, some people, they pour, it, 
people have a good, healthy, lots of healthy coping strategies, they're more likely to be resilient to these traumatic experiences. So if they have family members they can turn to, friends that they can turn to for support, if they are actively engaged um, physically, that can be um, allow them to be more resilient to these kinds of events. If they um, kind of going back to those basics, if they have a good meditation or mindfulness practice, or if they eat healthy and take care of their bodies in general, and they just kind of overall have a good um, approach to managing stress in their life, these things typically will have less of an impact um, because these people tend to be more positive in general about kind of life and what it holds. And so when there's one traumatic event, it's less likely to completely change their perspective on the world. Sure. A little bit like when people are highly stressed, they get to their breaking point faster. Yes. Or they, they have a, a shorter temper, a shorter fuse, less patience. And I'm in all of our patients, knee deep in alcoholism, drug addiction, severe depression, uh, their stress load is very massive. Yes. And so we even see people who don't necessarily even experience one of these um, trauma, how we defined it, and sometimes we'll call that the big T trauma, but they re- they experience kind of repetitive stressors and multiple my, smaller traumas, if you will, at about the same time, that can actually lead to similar symptoms of what we'd see with somebody with PTSD. So they're less able to manage the response that they're having emotionally, physically to those stressors. So recurrent, low intensity trauma over and over and over again can lead to somebody appearing very with a similar collection of symptoms? Yes. PTSD is Similar, but of course you wouldn't meet the criteria for that diagnosis. Um, but it also, those kinds of things also often lend us towards unhealthier coping strategies. So when we have those repetitive, smaller, stressful, not I want to say smaller stressful events, but repetitive stressful events that don't meet that threshold of trauma, um, they can have a very similar effect on us physically and emotionally and put us at greater risk for disease, um, health problems, and addiction. Sure. And that makes sense. Stress leading to more vulnerability, leading to more problems, leading to more stress. I'm sure that this, yeah, this this cycle goes on and on. Yes. Um, Dr. Hackard, do you ever feel that some either patients or families are told incorrect messages about trauma from other people? Has this ever happened? Yes. Unfortunately, um, I've worked with a lot of patients who have had experiences where they are going into treatment and it's one of the first times they've been in treatment or it's one of the first times they've been really open about their trauma and the provider is not prepared or not comfortable with really helping the client work through the trauma or help the family understand that because for whatever reason. Um, and so that can often be a, almost a re-traumatizing experience for the client because one of the um, most important things is after somebody experiences a trauma is how how they're responded to when they share that information or they if they seek out help, how that's received. And so to have the first time or one of the first times you share that with somebody be received negatively can further exacerbate symptoms and make it even a more um, problematic situation. That's really fascinating. So almost like the the counselor or the therapist or the doc is not able to hold the information, kind of don't want to hear about it in some way, and then the person feels kind of ashamed that they brought it up. Yes, exactly. And I 
one of the very unfortunate things I think about or feel, and this um, blows my mind in many ways, is that you can complete a PhD and a variety of other degrees without ever having specific training on trauma or addiction. Um, and so it's not uncommon for providers not to have that experience. So uh, it's a lot of, you may have heard the term of trauma-informed care. It's a very common um, thing organizations will talk about. And I would highly encourage you to seek out trauma-informed or organizations and programs like ours here at CEDAR um, because it, it more likely ensures that providers understand trauma and what it, um, how it affects people, how people respond, what, tra what are trauma responses, um, and understanding that can really change the way we approach a person and how we um, approach their treatment. Sure. And so really with a, uh, holding the bar up to a certain standard that the healthcare organization is not afraid of this topic. Like yes. We, we address this head on. We're not afraid to talk about it. We, we want our patients to share and feel safe and feel comfortable. Yes, and provide as providers, we have to be skilled in knowing what is appropriate for that. So one of the things um, we'll see sometimes at Cedar is somebody who comes in with really acute symptoms of PTSD. Um, as So it's not uncommon for people as they're detoxing from their substances that they, we see an increase in their symptoms of PTSD. And so it's, although um, the client may be wanting to kind of dive into the phase of reprocessing, to be aware that that's not usually the best approach in treating the trauma um, or addressing that in the context of this treatment. And so helping the client with that and be able to um, still maintain a safe environment for all of the clients because not all of our clients are able to hold that space either. Um, so it's a really a balance of, it's a really delicate balance of sure, managing like a, that. Like a, uh, a tempered approach of how we're going to address it with them, how we're going to help them feel safe, monitoring this as we go. It's probably very, we have kind of a luxury here at the hospital. I mean, we work, we're working with people 24 seven. Mm -hmm. So we get to see how this might play out in group therapy, uh, in interacting with their peers or other colleagues, the difference between uh, communicating and having a session with one provider compared to another provider and pre, uh, presenting very differently. I think this is all kind of a luxury that we have here at Cedar. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It allows us to get a lot more data and to really better understand the client and um, what is um, potentially fueling those symptoms and what we're seeing. Okay. Are there, can you throw out a couple of the names of some of the therapies that are used, like some of the dedicated uh, trauma-focused modalities and things that are that people might hear about? Sure. So um, we'll specifically first thinking about what clients are likely to see while they're here in their first 30 days of treatment with us is they're going to see a lot of um, DBT skills and CBT skills. So dialectical behavioral therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and so I mentioned earlier that one of um, the most important aspects of trauma treatment is obtaining additional skills. So in thinking about our population, um, one of our biggest concerns is that if we were to initiate trauma processing too early, that they would likely relapse. And so we, then that's a common occurrence. We see that happen um, if that's initiated too soon because there's not enough coping strategies there. Outside of those first 30 days, though, there are a lot of other evidence-based approaches to addressing trauma. Um, and some of those include cognitive processing therapy, 
prolonged exposure, and EMDR. Um, all three of these, to my knowledge, incorporate cognitive behavioral, they're grounded in cognitive behavioral therapy, um, but they build off of that um, and then allow you to get into the processing phase of trauma work. So that's good to know. At the, the root of these therapies, these are CBT therapies, cognitive mm-hmm. behavioral therapy. We, we talk about that a lot here at CEDAR. That seems to be one of the flagship overall modalities that has very strong evidence for helping people in recovery, uh, helping build awareness, coping skills, understanding the mind. There's a, there's a lot that goes into CBT. So the, so you said, so we've got prolonged exposure therapy, cognitive processing therapy, and then EMDR. And that stands for eye movement desensitization reprocessing? Correct, yes. That's right. Okay. This was actually a very good discussion. I guess a little bit to recap. We talked about what is PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, we talked about some of the research done by Kaiser and the ACEs uh, research, which was very profound. That looked at development and then all the numbers of the risk factors for people developing a whole wide array of mental illness plus general physical illness conditions over the course of their life. I know we were commenting on what we see here at CEDAR and how we work with patients and then a little bit on some of the treatment approaches and theoretical model on how to keep somebody feeling safe so that they can make their next steps and keep expanding in their recovery milestones. Yeah, absolutely. I guess one of the biggest messages I hope people who are considering treatment take away is that um, it is possible to in some ways treat both of these consecutively or at the same time and to reiterate that all of the skills that you're working on in addiction treatment whether you're here at Cedar or somewhere else are also allowing you to be better prepared to engage in later phases of trauma work. And so it's not uncommon for us to get clients who really want to just dive right into that and to not understand that. And like I, like you asked the question, and I, um, a lot of providers aren't aware or don't know or don't understand. Um, and so it's really important that people find a provider that they really trust to do that work. And that work typically isn't quick and easy. It can be really challenging work and it can be really can really make a huge difference in people's lives. And so being able to um, face instead of avoid that trauma can make an incredibly huge change in the way people move forward in their lives. And then, and then I guess re, uh, tying that, we commented on what we call trauma-informed care, and that's a standard by which health centers and institutions have competency to be able to work with people who have had traumatic pasts on the whole spectrum of trauma be very unafraid of that topic, uh, and provide what patients need. Yeah, and so that can, I mean, that's obviously, we see that in the milieu and in our clinical work, but an organization that takes into consideration trauma-informed practices embeds this within their policies and procedures and takes into consideration um, the way trauma affects people like throughout the whole organization, not just with the the therapists or the clinicians. Oh, so even the... Uh... All the other staff, even the people who work here, and I know um, you touched on that also at the beginning, the concept of like secondary trauma or the being told stories over and over and over again about very dark things. And does that start to weigh down the clinician or the support staff or the docs or Mm -hmm. everybody? 
Yeah, it absolutely can. So it's one of the things that one of the reasons I love cedar so much is I feel like there's really a encouragement for us to take care of ourselves and to incorporate sometimes what we'll call self-care. So not only are we teaching our clients the importance of this, but as an organization, I have felt supported in the sense that we also encourage ourselves to do that and demonstrate that, especially when it comes to working with these really challenging clinical presentations. Well, very good. So uh, I'm Dr. Failing. Uh, I've been sitting down with Robin Hacker, psychologist here at Cedar, really uh, delving into the world of trauma, what we see, what we know from a research perspective. Uh, this was very helpful. Robin, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Please visit cedarcolorado.org for a wide array of educational content about the disease of addiction and the science of recovery. If you or a loved one are considering CEDAR and the University of Colorado Hospital for treatment, please speak with our admissions team at 720-848-3000. CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Helping people build a life of recovery.